listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I want to, uh, to say a few things by way of introduction, and then I'll begin to give you my outline along the way. First, I want, there's something that I came across a couple of months ago that I thought was so profound, I decided that I would begin my class with it. I was reading a 20th century, or maybe it was even written in the 21st century, a biography of the Verney family by a British author named Adrian Tinniswood. I was on vacation in February with my wife, and I was reading this book, and uh, I was really enjoying it along the way. And uh, in the midst of the reading, I, I, I came to one page, and there was a statement that just knocked me off my chair. I thought it was one of the most profound reflections, uh, one of the pro- most profound statements about doing history that I had ever seen in my life. Uh, it was unattributed. Uh, I thought it was Tinniswood's statement. I found afterwards that it actually comes from another source. But it's become so common in um, English reflection or British reflection on history that uh, it almost needs no attribution. It comes from the opening line of a novel that was written in 1953 by a man named um, L.R. Hartley, or is it L.B. Hartley? But this is the quote. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Now, I haven't read the novel. I can't tell you whether or not it's a good book to read. I generally don't read novels. Um, But this is the opening sentence from the book. And as I thought about it, I thought, this, this is one of the most helpful reflections I've ever seen on what happens when we think about history. You know, um, in the last couple of months, I've been on both sides of both oceans uh, that surround the United States. I've been on the other side of the Pacific and the other side of the Atlantic. Um, I have been in Germany. I've been in Ukraine. I was a tourist in China. I uh, Every time that I go to one of these countries, I am reminded of the differences that there are between my own experience in the United States and these places, whether it's a difference of language or a difference of culture or a difference of food. It's always different. Now, the experience might be more familiar or less familiar. When I'm in Germany, I can speak just a little bit of German so I can get around and I can order myself food and I can eat and I can get a taxi and I can get a room in a hotel and I can do those things. When I'm in Ukraine, I can speak about five words of Russian, so I really can't do much if there isn't an interpreter. And when I was in China, I could do almost nothing. I remember one day I was down in in, uh, the city and I was in a festival with uh, thousands and thousands of people and uh, being part of, uh, of that, I, I looked around and I realized that I was the only Westerner in this whole festival as it went on. And I thought, wow, you know, I don't know anything about this. And we were, we were walking down through it and there were food booths and all the rest. And all of a sudden there was this horrible odor. And I said to someone, what is that smell? And he said to me, oh, that's stinky tofu. And it was, oh, it was, it was just horrible. It was like dirty socks that had been, uh, you know, left for a month in the heat and in a plastic bag and then taken out. Oh, it was, it was horrible. And I was reminded of the differences of culture. Now, that's true of our studies of the past. We cannot come to our studies of the past and make assumptions about them. 
We can't make assumptions sometimes even about the language that they use. Words change meaning in three or four hundred years. The way that words, uh, that, that ideas are phrased may be changed. Cultural practices may be different. Ideas are different. Everything is different, and we have to challenge our assumptions about the past when we come to study the past. So I, I want you to remember this, this sentence from L.B. Hartley's book, The Go-Between. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And we'll see that over and over and over again that when we come to the past, they did things differently during the Puritan age. All right. Well, let's, let's move on. A question of methodology. You know, the secondary literature on Puritans and Puritanism is vast. It's, it's amazing how much literature is out there and how much is constantly still being churned out all the time. I am constantly... Um, seeing new books and wanting to go out and buy new books because there's all kinds of material out there. Well, when you approach the material, the secondary literature on Puritanism, you must be aware of two things. Now, while this may be a generalization, let's say this. The literature on Puritanism may broadly be divided into two categories, the historicist category and the providentialist category. And these two categories reflect a major historiographical split that developed in the 20th century. Professional historians today generally are historicists. That is, in religious history, they frequently minimize the place and role of religious conviction in forming the life and thought of communities. They may tend to highlight politics or economics or culture or medicine, for example, the plague, in 1666, or they might even emphasize climate. And all of those things together form Puritanism in their minds. Religious actions become the result of the interplay of these various historical circumstances. And so religion for them is a reaction to all the rest of life. And you have to be aware when you read historicist historians that that's the perspective that's driving the conclusions or the story that they tell. Providentialists tend to come at the story just the opposite. They tend to interpret religious events in the light of their own religious convictions, whatever that might happen to be. And oftentimes with overconfidence, they not only assert divine causation, but interpret it for their readers. And so interpretation from the providentialist perspective really depends on who your hero is. See, whoever you happen to like the most becomes the most important person in historiographical reflection. Now, let's say that there are very valuable works that come out of both camps, and they must not be ignored. But they usually need to be supplemented by works that come from the other side. That is, you need to read providentialist historians and you need to read historicist historians and think through the matter. The secular historicist author frequently uncovers important and interesting issues that do influence the actions of the subjects of the day. You cannot study the middle of the 17th century without considering the English Civil Wars. You simply can't do that. You have to know what's going on between the king and the parliament and how it afflicts religion. You have to do that. 
We do no disservice to our faith when we recognize this fact. In fact, our confession acknowledges clearly the validity of second causes. Read the chapter on providence. Think through the matter of second causes and recognize the validity of them. On the other hand, the providentialist historian frequently provides a powerful insight into the important role that theology plays in molding the thoughts and actions of the subjects under study. And this theological insight explains important factors that may be missed by the historicist. So when you read the secondary literature, you need to keep these things in mind. Our class is about Puritanism in context. We need to use multiple lenses in order to understand best our topic. So I hope you'll make use of both types of historiography and that together we'll have a well-rounded understanding of this movement. Now, largely speaking, this is an overgeneralization, Packer writes from a providentialist perspective. Gleason and Capic, largely their authors, write from a providentialist perspective. Okay, These are Christians who are writing these books. Cressy and Laurieann Farrell are choosing things from a historicist perspective. Their choices tend to be governed by an historicist rather than a providentialist perspective. Nevertheless, the material that they have chosen is very good. And there's a lot of fine theological work in this book. All right, So even in, in this literature that we've chosen, we're leaning towards the providentialist view. You'd expect that in a Christian class. But we have some material that comes to us from a historicist perspective as well. All right, So I hope you'll use both types of historiography and that together we'll have a well-rounded understanding of this uh, movement that we call Puritanism. Now, in uh, tonight, at least at the beginning, my goal is to give you an historical overview, to give you some idea of the context out of which the movement developed. So I want to talk about politics, international politics, religious politics, and then we will discuss how two authors explain the movement to their contemporaries. We'll see some primary sources here as, as to how some men from the 17th century tried to explain what Puritanism is about. And so in a sense, even what we're doing here is trying to combine aspects of the two methods. We're trying to see some historical factors that influence and mold and shape the events and the people that we call Puritans, while at the same time, we're going to hear some 17th century writers talking about the theology and the causation of Puritanism from a providentialist perspective. Okay, So that's what we're going to do uh, at the beginning of our time tonight. Now, there are, there are questions that you might ask as you come to study this, this question. For example, what is the popular notion of Puritanism in our culture? You're probably familiar with uh, that uh, satirical remark from H.L. Mencken, who said something like, Puritanism is the fear that someone somewhere is having a good time. It was Mencken who said that. Now, that is very popularly repeated in our culture, and it has molded the shape and the idea that people commonly around us have of Puritanism. It's interesting, though, that when you get into the academic literature, academics know better. And they recognize that that's a gross caricature 
of Puritanism. Nevertheless, it still is, in many cases, the popular view. You use the word Puritan, you're talking about a narrow-minded, closed-minded religious bigot, a religious zealot. That's, that's what you think of. And typically, in the media, that's how they're portrayed, oftentimes hypocritically. Um, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, for example, is an attempt to caricature Puritanism as hypocritical. Well, we want to have a better understanding of what Puritanism is, and I hope that through this week we'll focus our lens uh, much more clearly than, than the, uh, what the popular notion of Puritanism is. All right, now, all of that said as, as by way of introduction, we're still in the introduction. Let me begin to put my outline here on the board for you. So Roman numeral one, a definition uh, or the problem of definition. All right, the problem of definition. Letter A, and I begin with a question that you think will be a strange question. But my question is this. Did Puritanism exist? Did Puritanism exist? Now, actually, this is an interesting question. And it's not lightly to be dismissed. Now, I know what you're thinking. By our course title and by the topic, we acknowledge the existence of the movement. But what we need to do is take a step back for just a moment and think about this. Okay? So, number one. Originally, the label Puritan was a term of scorn or derision. It was a term that was hurled by the enemies of these individuals. There were a series of terms that were used to describe them. Precisian, P-R-E-C-I-S-I-A-N. Scripture man, saint, and the worst term of opprobrium, Anabaptist, was hurled at these individuals. Those on the receiving end of the epithet Puritan tended not to use it at first about themselves. And they preferred other terms, for example, the godly, or the gospelers, or simply professors, that is, those who profess the faith of Jesus Christ. At first, they didn't use the term Puritan of themselves. They rejected it, and they had other handles that they were more comfortable with to describe themselves, godly, gospelers, professors, etc. Okay? Number two. Now, the terms, the variety of terms that we've just noted, reflect an interesting reality. The circumstances of the English church in the latter half of the 16th century generally were not amenable to the type of religion that was practiced by these folks who were at first accused of being Puritans. That is, at large, the powers that be in the Church of England, now I'm generalizing here, we'll have a lot more to say, but generally speaking, the powers that be in the Church of England and much of the populace of the nation of England did not approve of their religion and so threw this label Puritan at them. But we have to ask the question, what was the religion that was being criticized? All right, now, here is a very important point. What 
was being labeled as Puritanism or Precisionism or Scripture man or saints or Anabaptists, whatever it was, and the term Anabaptist was used very loosely. It was just one of those terms that had a lot of mud. If you could make it stick, no matter who you threw it at, it helped your cause. It was really what they were talking about was the English version of continental Protestantism. That's at its root what Puritanism is. It's the English version of continental Protestantism. While the crown of England tottered between allegiance to Rome and royal ecclesiastical prerogatives, the populace was largely indifferent to the changes. We study history among the great. That's generally what we do, because we have plenty of records. We know a lot about the great. Neglect of the many others may produce stifling opinions. When the crowds, or those unconcerned with the type of religion promoted by these Protestants, mock them with these titles, they were really making charges against the Reformation movement as a whole. You see, that's what was happening. While we see that Puritan, Puritanism is a developing movement in response to a wide variety of stimuli, religious, political, popular, it should first and foremost be considered as one with the Reformed churches of the continent. You have to think in terms of a pan-European Reformed movement, and what we call Puritanism is simply the English version of that pan-European Protestantism. Now, as we'll see, early in the development of Reformation in England, Lutheranism had a greater sway. But after the return of the Marian exiles, who had found refuge in the reformed cities of Europe under Calvin and Beza and Bullinger, these became the men who wielded tremendous influence in England. Because under Queen Mary's rule, they were driven out and they went to the reformed cities and they learned from these teachers, they brought back their ideas to England. We must think in terms of a broader religious consensus than simply England and recognize that Puritanism must not be isolated from the wider religious and theological context of Europe. In this sense, Patrick Collinson was one of, in my opinion, one of the better writers on early Puritanism. Collinson is correct. When he describes Puritanism under the title of one of his books, he calls it the religion of Protestants. That's exactly right, because that's what Puritanism is. It is the religion of Protestants in England. Now, that leads to my second point, okay? So, letter B. How extensively should we define Puritanism? Let me, uh, uh, we have here on the screen a definition that comes from uh, a very fine author of secondary literature, a man named John Spur. And John Spur uh, is cited in the introduction to Capic and Gleason's book, uh, and this is his definition of Puritanism. He says, uh, you can see it on the screen, it grows out of the individual's conviction that they have been personally saved by God elected to salvation by a merciful God for no merit of their own, and that as a consequence of that election, 
They must lead a life of visible piety, must be a member of a church modeled on the pattern of the New Testament, and must work to make their community and nation a model Christian society. Now, I think that we can reduce this to four emphases. First, salvation apart from merit. Puritanism recognizes that an individual, according to Spurs' definition, Puritanism, recognizes that an individual finds salvation apart from any personal merit. Secondly, Puritanism, according to Spur, focuses upon holiness, what he calls visible piety. That is, that individuals who have experienced this salvation apart from personal merit are to demonstrate the reality of that salvation by living a life of visible piety, or what we probably would more commonly call uh, holiness. Thirdly, Spur here identifies, he says, they must be a member of a church modeled on the pattern of the New Testament. Let's call this primitivist ecclesiology. That is, an ecclesiology which is driven by the desire to find that which is first. There was a Latin phrase that you'll come across sometimes, and uh, roughly translated, it means something like this, that which was first is best. And this was an idea that drove the Puritans. They wanted to get back to the New Testament era. They wanted to ask and answer the question, what does the New Testament say about the life and the pattern of the church? So Spur identifies this. I'm calling it primitivist ecclesiology. He's saying that, that this person is a member of a church modeled on the pattern of the New Testament. And then fourthly, uh, uh, Spur says, they must work to make their community and nation a model Christian society. That is, uh, Puritanism generally did not see the individual or the church in isolation from the society around it, but wanted to influence the society, probably as a result of the medieval wedding between church and state. Now, when I read Spurs' definition, I have to ask a question. Is there anything missing here? Because I'm not sure that this would be the sum total of the categories that I would use if I were seeking to define Puritanism. And I would say that there are two things, especially that ought to be present, which are missing in Spurs' definition. Now let me move on uh, to the next slide, because I want to talk about John Geary and then William Bradshaw, these two men that I mentioned earlier on. And I want to uh, present to you some mer uh, material from books that they wrote. Now, John Geary published this book in 1646. So he's looking back, and he's reflecting at this point. Now, this is the time when Parliament is in conflict with King Charles I, when the Westminster Assembly is meeting, when there's an uproar in the nation about religious matters. Archbishop Laud was executed the year before. There's all kinds of things going on. And Geary is writing in order to defend the nature of Puritanism. So he looks back. You can tell by his title, the character of an old English Puritan or nonconformist. What does Gary say? I've picked out one or two readings here, uh, and I, I want you to follow along with me. Here's his description. This is the beginning of what he writes. The old English Puritan was such an one that honored God above all, and under God gave everyone his due. His first care was to serve God, 
And therein he did not what was good in his own, but in God's sight, making the word of God the rule of his worship. He highly esteemed order in the house of God, but would not under color of that submit to superstitious rites, which are superfluous, and perish in their use. He reverenced authority, keeping within its sphere, but durst not under pretense of subjection to the higher powers worship God after the traditions of men. He made conscience of all God's ordinances, though some he esteemed of more consequence. He was much in prayer. With it he began and closed the day. In it he was exercised in his closet, family, and public assembly. He esteemed that manner of prayer best, whereby the gift of God, uh, by the gift of God, expressions were varied, etc. Now, let, don't look at what's next yet. Okay. Here, Gary, in some ways, echoes Spurs' definition, but he adds two things. I'm not ready to point them out yet, but he adds two things that I think are of monumental consequence in trying to define the nature of Puritanism. Let's pick it up again. This is a little bit later on. In Gary's book, you'll see from my heading at the top, this is from pages four and five. Now, because, because these are taken from electronic copies of 17th century originals, uh, and I, I don't, I'm not real super skilled in using Adobe Acrobat and all the rest, all I could do is cut out boxes. So sometimes you get the end of a sentence at the top or the, the beginning of a sentence at the bottom. I'm really interested in what's in between, okay? So we're, we're just going to ignore fragments. Pick it up on the left side. He put not holiness in churches, as in the temple of the Jews, but only counted them convenient like their synagogues. Now, he's talking about buildings here. Okay, that's what he's talking about. He would have them kept decent, not magnificent, knowing that the gospel requires not outward pomp. His chiefest music was singing of psalms, wherein though he neglected not the melody of the voice, yet he chiefly looked after that of the heart. He disliked such church music as moved sensual delight and was an hindrance to spiritual enlargements. He accounted subjection to higher powers to be part of pure religion as well as to visit the fatherless and the widow. And then over to the next page. He was careful in all relations to know and do duty and that with singleness of heart as unto Christ. He accounted religion and engagement to duty that the best Christians should be best husbands, best wives, best parents, best children, best masters, best servants, best magistrates, best subjects, that the doctrine of God might be adorned, not blasphemed. His family he endeavored to make a church, both in regard of persons and exercising, admitting none into it but such as feared God. And there he's thinking about uh, servants or those who would come to live in the family. Okay, now this this is incredibly helpful material from Gary. This is a man writing in 1646, reflecting on the previous hundred years and trying to identify and articulate characteristics in his mind that marked out the old English Puritan or nonconformist. Okay, now let's keep going. Another writer. Uh, now, this was published in 1641, but originally 
It was about 40 years before that, or 35 years before that, much earlier in the century. English Puritanism, containing the main opinions of the rigidest sort of those that are called Puritans in the realm of England. Now, ignore the fact that it says, written by William Ames, Doctor of Divinity. This was not written by William Ames. It was published in the 16-teens with an introduction by William Ames. And so someone who published it in 1641 made the mistake of making Ames the author. It's actually a man named William Bradshaw, okay? So ignore that. Now, when you read that title, it sounds like it's going to be a negative take on Puritanism, doesn't it? The, the main opinions of the rigidest sort of those that are called Puritans in the realm of England. But what Bradshaw is about to do is to show us true Christianity. And he's, he, he wants to show us what the rigidest sort are like, not in caricature, but in reality, and actually he's presenting to us a picture that anyone should recognize as a picture of a true believer in Christ, not a fanatic, not a hypocrite, but a true believer. So let's, let's look ahead and see what Bradshaw says. I, I find this stuff fascinating and extremely helpful in trying to come to some conclusions in a definition of Puritanism, okay? So let's, let's read these now. To the indifferent reader. Now, are you an indifferent reader? Do you ever think of yourself in those terms? Now, that's one of those words we wouldn't use the same way today, okay? When we use the word indifferent, we, we think of somebody who's bored out of their skull and sitting in a room and looking out the window and waiting for it to end. But that's not what, what he means by this. He means to the reader who is willing to come without bias and to, to weigh the material that he presents, okay? To the indifferent reader. It cannot be unknown unto them that know anything that those Christians in this realm which are called by the odious and vile name of Puritans, notice how he caricatures it, the odious and vile name of Puritans, are accused by the prelates to the king's majesty and the state to maintain many absurd, erroneous, schismatical, and heretical opinions concerning religion, church government, and the civil magistracy, which hath moved me to collect, as near as I could, the chiefest of them, and to send them naked to the view of all men, that they may see what is the worst that the worst of them hold. Now, I mean, this is, this is great, isn't it? It is not my part to prove and justify them. Those that accuse and condemn them must in all reason and equity Prove their accusation or else bear the name of unchristian slanderers. The burden of proof is on you, you see. If you say these things, I'm just going to lay the material out to you. I'm going to tell you what the strongest of them believe, and the burden of proof is on you to show that this is untrue. Fascinating approach here. All right, so some material from chapter 1. Concerning religion or the worship of God in general. Imprimis, that is, uh, uh, um, here's my statement at the beginning, I'm asserting this to you. They hold and maintain that the word of God contained in the writings of the prophets and apostles is of absolute perfection, given by Christ, the head of the church, to be unto the same, the sole canon and rule of all matters of religion, and the worship and service of God whatsoever, and that whatsoever done in the same service and worship cannot be justified by the said word is unlawful, 
and therefore it is a sin to force any Christian to do any act of religion or divine service that cannot evidently be warranted by the same. Okay, now what is that? That's a statement of the centrality of Scripture, isn't it? And this is the first paragraph of chapter 1. This is his entrance into his discussion about Puritanism. Okay, I want to go back. I, I didn't give you any more. Now, let's think about these things that we've read. There, there's a whole lot more that we could have read from Gary and we could have read from Bradshaw. But I, I hope that this is illustrative and will serve to make my point. It seems to me that in Spurs' definition, let, remi let me remind you of his four points. Salvation apart from merit. Is that true? Yes. Holiness of life. Is that true? Yes, it is. A primitivist ecclesiology. Is that true? Yes, it is. Community and nation as a model society. I would want to hedge that one up a little bit. I'm not convinced that it's as central as John Spur might make it to be. But let me add two more points, which I draw from Garee and from uh, Bradshaw, which I think are missing. The first of them is the supremacy of Scripture. It is the supremacy of Scripture, a recovery and an understanding of the centrality of the Bible, of the importance of the Word of God that is a driving force in the Puritan movement. Here we have Bradshaw, who opens up his treatise. Now, these are not long books. These are 16 or 18 or 20 pages long. They're not extensive treatises. They're summaries. But Bradshaw begins, and certainly this was present in Gurie, begins with a statement about the centrality of Scripture. The second point that I think needs to be made, and this one perhaps more explicit in the material I gave you from Gary, is the importance of the purity of worship. Puritanism, as we think of it, has to do with the purity of worship. It was a desire to see Reformation come into the worship of the church. Now, I would want a definition of Puritanism to focus on these two things, to emphasize, or at least to include, if not to highlight and to emphasize the supremacy of Scripture and the importance of the purity of worship in their minds. Now, it may have been worked out in different ways among them. Nevertheless, driving forces behind what they did have to be understood in terms of uh, the purity of worship and the supremacy of Scripture. Now, having said that, let me go back for a minute to um, Spurs' definition because I want to make one more comment. I also wonder if Spurs' definition might not be somewhat too exclusive in the way that he phrases himself. For example, you'll notice that he says, Puritanism grows out of the individual's conviction that they have been personally saved by God, elected to salvation by a merciful God for no merit of, by a merciful God, I'm sorry, that they have been personally saved by God, elected to salvation by a merciful God for no merit of their own. Spur uses the term election. But I want to ask the question, was it possible to be an Arminian Puritan? is a focus in Spurs' definition on Calvinism or predestinarianism too narrow? And does it exclude those who could not agree with the doctrine of election 
and yet who might rightly be considered Puritans. Now, probably you're thinking right now about the General Baptists. There was a large group of Baptists who were, by conviction, Arminians. We call them General Baptists because they believed in the General Atonement. But I'm not even thinking of them at this point. I'm thinking about another man, and he will appear once or twice over the course of the week as we tell our story. His name was John Goodwin. Now, John Goodwin was not related to Thomas Goodwin. And we must not confuse the two men. You'll get into all kinds of trouble historically if you confuse John Goodwin with Thomas Goodwin. But John Goodwin was a very important Republican who pastored an important church in London, in Coleman Street, London, and who was the leading Arminian thinker of his day. Now, I don't think that there's any way that we can look at John Goodwin and his life and reject him or put him outside of the pale of Puritanism. He belongs within the definition of Puritanism, and yet he was in no way a Calvinist. John Owen, in volume 11 on his treatise on perseverance of the saints, interacts all the way through with Goodwin's writings. And Owen is at his acerbic and satirical best in his interactions with John Goodwin. But to put together a definition that would exclude someone like John Goodwin, I think, is a mistake. It's safe to say that English Puritanism, in many ways, resembled the same parties and differences that were present on the continent of Europe among the Reformed churches. Okay, We've said that Puritanism is an English version of continental Protestantism. And English Puritanism largely reflects the same kinds of parties and differences that were present on the continent. So John Goodwin was an Arminian. Richard Baxter was an Amaraldian. Thomas Cartwright, like John Calvin, could live with some vestments. John Owen could not. So how do we define Puritanism then? Well, that's why I asked the question, is there such a thing as Puritanism? Because it really is hard to nail it down. When I first asked the question, you thought to yourself, I know what a Puritan is. It's John Owen. It's John Bunyan. Well, really, there's more to the picture than meets the eye. In fact, in almost any book that you pick up on Puritanism, whatever it is, almost any book, either the introduction or the first chapter will be devoted to try to work through this question and come to a conclusion. There are some who want to reject the term altogether because it was a term of scorn, and it wasn't used by them until later on. Largely, scholarship says we ought to use the term, but we have to define it carefully, and that's what we've been trying to do. So what I want to do is use Spurs' definition that was given to you but I want to supplement it. I want to understand that the categories in it might be flexible and that there's more that can be said than the definition that you'll read on, I think it's page 18 of this book. Okay, so that's, uh, that's how we're going to move forward. Think of it in terms of the English version of continental Protestantism. All right, now that leads me to letter C. All right, if there is such a thing as Puritanism, when did it begin and when did it end? Well, there's no agreement on these two questions either.
for our purposes, these are the rough dates that we're going to work with, 1548 and 1699, with qualification. Now, 1548 is the, the date of what's called the Vestiarian Controversy. <clears throat> we'll talk about that in a little while. Um, maybe I'm sp I, I think I didn't mark my notes well to say which slides I wanted to look at. Okay, the Vestiarian Controversy had to do with whether or not it was appropriate for clergymen ministers to wear vestments in the performance of their ministerial duties, okay? And Puritans, those that we are positively calling Puritans, as early as 1548, rejected, there were, there were two vestments that especially offended them. And because these words come up a lot, I want to talk about them and give you a definition so that you'll understand from the beginning what these things are, all right? So the vestments that they rejected were the surplice, which was, uh, here's, here's a quote from the Hampton Court Conference, a garment the priests of Isis used to wear. That tells you how the Puritans felt about the surplice. And the cope. The cope, surpluses and copes be superstitious and idolatrous. A comment that was included in a 1567 report of an inquiry by the Bishop of London. Now, what were they? Um, the Pur Okay, the Puritans wondered, why were these vestments kept while other vestments from the Roman church had been rejected. Why is it that there were these two especially that had been kept while others had been abandoned? The answer was royal prerogative, because the king said so. And they weren't willing, they weren't satisfied with that. This is a surplus. Now this is a modern picture, and this is uh, from a Roman Catholic website, so I assume that that guy's a Catholic priest. I don't know. You'll, you'll see many other pictures portraits from the Puritan era in which you see this. But the surplus is the white gown that uh, this priest is wearing over his black robes. Okay, that's the surplus. You got that? Then we have the cope. Um, yeah, I, sh I should have said this. Vestments are worn during worship. The surplus is the white outer garment. The next, there's the cope and the stole. The stole is what is wrapped around his neck inside of his hands hanging down in front of his knees. That's the stole. But the cope is the outer garment, the red and the white, okay? The cope was worn by bishops during worship. The surplus was to be worn by all of the ministers. The cope was to be worn by the bishops, all right? Now, in 1548, John Hooper was chosen to be the Bishop of Gloucester, and he refused to be inducted into his office of bishop wearing the surplus and the cope. And that began a huge controversy. And I'm dating the beginning of Puritanism with that controversy in 1548. Okay? Now, uh, I'm ending it arbitrarily. Okay? I hope you hear that word, arbitrarily, at 1699. Now, let me say a few words about these dates, okay? These dates assume several things. First, they assume the influences of the Protestant churches pressing for full reformation in the early stages of the 16th century. Okay, that's what they assume. 1548, under influence from Protestants on the continent, 
the English church, some in the English church, begin to press for full reformation in the church, and the Vestiarian controversy is sort of the shot across the bow. The second thing that this assumes is the relevance and irrelevance of the year 1662. The relevance and irrelevance of the year 1662. Now, what am I talking about? Why do I say this? 1662 is the year in which the Puritans, about almost 2,000 of them, were forced out of the Church of England by the Act of Uniformity on St. Bartholomew's Day in August of 1662. If they couldn't agree to the royal supremacy, if they couldn't read the King's Declaration in the church on that last Sunday of August, they had to lay down their ministries and leave. And at that point, Puritanism within the Church of England is effectively dead, you see. Because either you conformed to the commands of the king, you, you in a sense caved in to what the king said, either in terms of his supremacy or what needed to be done in worship, reading the Book of Common Worship, wearing, wearing the vestments, either you gave in to that or you walked away. Okay, So that's a very important date. 1662 becomes a very important date. At that moment, St. Bartholomew's Day in that year, effectively speaking, there is no more Puritan movement within the Church of England. Okay, But that, those nearly 2,000 ministers didn't die that day. And many of them continued on finding other ways to preach and to serve God's people and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the last one of them lived until 1720. The last ejected minister lived almost 60 years after the ejection until 1720. And so I say the date is relevant because of what it did to the Church of England, but it's irrelevant because many of those guys continued to live. And they live for many more years. And so while they're not in the Church of England trying to press for full reformation there, they're still really Puritans, you see. Because you get forced out, you don't change your views. So the date is, in that sense, irrelevant, and that's why we can go on. Now, the third thing that this, these dates assume is that by 1699, most of the prominent ejected ministers had died. It's the last year that begins with 16. But by then, almost all of the prominent men who had been ejected from the Church of England had died and got off the scene. So it's a reasonable uh, date. Two more things to say here. Uh, fourthly, New England is a problem. It is a problem in terms of the dates. And that's because its geographical isolation presented circumstances that were different to the circumstances in the Kingdom of England. Some would like to make the death of Cotton Mather in 1728 the terminus of New England Puritanism. That's fine, but we just can't go that far. And so I've chosen arbitrarily to use 1699. The fifth thing to say is I recognize that this eliminates men like Thomas Boston and Jonathan Edwards from our conversation. But you have to stop somewhere. So that's where the professor has chosen to stop. So that's where we're stopping. And I apologize if you were looking forward to hearing about Jonathan Edwards. 
he probably won't come up very often over the course of the rest of the week. But you understand why. We're starting in 1548. We're going for 150 years. We have to stop somewhere. Most of our attention will be on England. We'll say very little about New England because of time limitations. But that's how we're treating it. Okay? So that's where we're at. That's what it's all about. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.